Welcome to Trangeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our new series of exclusive interviews with business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. My name is Karen Pilfalam, and I'm Trangeboard's Deputy Editor. Today, myself and Trangeboard CEO, Jim Carrick-Burtwell, are joined by Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts. In October 2016, Matthew was asked by Theresa May to lead an independent review into what modern employment looks like in the UK. The subsequent report, the Taylor Review of Modern Working Practices, was released in July 2017 with key recommendations on how we define good work and how we can enshrine employee rights in the face of new business models like Uber and Delivery. In this podcast, Matthew discusses the reaction to the review and why he believes it's misunderstood, how technology can have a positive impact on the notion of good work, and why we need a national framework to help push the skills agenda forward. Jim, Matthew, thanks for joining us today. Um, Matthew, I thought the easiest place to start would be to perhaps look at the Taylor Review uh, and maybe give us an idea of what your brief was from the government when you were asked to lead the review and perhaps if you could maybe summarise some of your key findings and perhaps what you think some of the most important and uh, exciting findings from the report are. Great. Well, wh- why don't I kind of take one bit of that at a time, or else this entire program is going to be me make, making, <laughs> my, making my 30-minute speech, for which I'm, you know, available at a reasonable rate. <laughs> I'm well known. Um, so let's start with the first question. We can maybe talk about that, and then, and then we'll talk about the, the recommendations. The, the government uh, asked me to look at a range of uh, issues uh, which reflected concerns around the nature of employment, modern employment. And rather than kind of go through my terms of reference, I think the important uh, misunderstanding that people often have about my review is that they think it was uh, exclusively or even primarily about gig work, about Uber and Deliveroo and TaskRabbit and these other kind of platforms, work platforms. That was a part of it. Um, And certainly those platforms and the growth of those platforms presents a real challenge to our regulatory framework. But... Uh, I interpreted the brief very early on, and government was happy for me so to do, as really being around the quality of work in the British economy as a whole. Uh, And so I've got used to the fact that I get introduced everywhere as Matthew Taylor's written a report on the gig economy, and I have to say, no, I've written a report about work, and particularly about people's experience of work at the bottom end of the labour market. So I think that politically, my brief should be understood as part of Theresa May delivering on the vision that she outlined when she first became Prime Minister, which was a kind of inclusive form of conservatism, Mm. and that had various strands to it. Some of those strands seem to have receded, and I think my review is, and we await the government's response, is one of the few bits of that platform that still feel quite strong. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, obviously, people have kind of interpreted it mainly as being around the gig economy, or perhaps focus on that part of it. I mean, one of the things you've mentioned elsewhere is, you know, in your review, you find that 15% of the labour market are now self-employed. I mean, is that a trend that you see in, increasing in the industry? I mean, how do you, how, why do you think people have sort of explored that more in the kind of press that's been around the review? Yeah, you're quite right to say that, that the growth of self-employment is one of the most significant longer-term uh, trends. Um, and this started um, around the kind of early 2000s. And people, I think, felt that it was something cyclical because we'd seen it before. We've seen self-employment grow at times of higher unemployment, for example, uh, where you know people couldn't get jobs, and so they tried to make a go of it themselves, or, uh, or 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 deal with the fact they could only work a few hours a week or whatever. Um, but it's grown and grown. Now I think at the moment it's reasonably steady. Um, 
My prediction would be there will be very gentle growth. Um, there are some demographic factors that drive it. Um, we will have more people who will be retiring without enough income to live on. And um, I think that there will be, particularly amongst the middle class people who retire without enough income to live on, there will, many of them will consider the possibility of becoming consultants in various ways or doing various forms of trading or activity to boost uh, their income. So I think that might drive a growth uh, of self-employment. Another important issue, of course, is how these gig platforms are ultimately defined. Are they defined as platforms of self-employment or are they defined as platforms for workers? So there's an issue there about kind of the classification. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it's going to explode. And I think in all these conversations, we should be mindful of the fact that, you know, 80% of people in the economy continue to work in fairly conventional, long-term, permanent jobs, either full-time or, or part-time. That model of employment is still the predominant model of employment. Sure. I think one of the one of the things perhaps that, that that's uh, made for your report being picked up in relation to kind of the gig economy is people's fascination with technology. You know, the fact that everyone's aware of quite how fast things are changing, the level of disruption that's coming down the track. Um, and I've heard you speak really positively about the impact of technology. Um, it would be interesting just to hear your views in terms of how you think technology is going to impact the world of work. Well, it's a very big question, Jim. And um, so let's let's look at the immediate set of questions, and then let's look at the longer term set of questions. So the the immediate set of issues are around these emerging platforms, and uh, I think that uh, the platforms that, in, that, that kind of disintermediate. Uh, between consumers and providers of uh, labor and services. I think that's broadly speaking um, a good thing. Uh, I think it enables people to have more flexibility to work in the ways that they want to, to explore becoming entrepreneurial. Um, and again, we, we come to interesting questions here about how we classify people. So should we classify every Airbnb host as an entrepreneur? Well, in a way they are, they, you know, they're running a small business, whether or not they're declaring it's another matter, but sure. they're running a business, so they're having to think about costs and outgoings and bookings and ratings and all of this kind of stuff. So, so I, I think that's all good, but um, th there is also danger in these systems, uh, which is that they are the site of exploitation uh, because these workforces can become very atomized because of course they don't, meet up with each other necessarily mm -hmm. they're all working through the platform um, and also that uh, our system for regulation and taxation is not geared towards these platforms which is why as we've seen so many kind of court cases so I think platform technologies can be a good thing but we've got to get the regulatory framework right and one of the reasons we have to do that is because if companies are able to portray what they do through platforms in a particular way which avoids having to pay employment taxes and avoids employment responsibilities, they will get a competitive edge over others who are working in more conventional ways. And then we could get a race, I mean, to say a race to the bottom sounds rather emotive, but you could get to a situation where those platform technologies are just uh, able to outperform others. And then we may end up with consequences that we don't want. Um, so that's one of the reasons we've got to make sure that we try to maintain a level playing field in mm. relation to these platforms. They're great entrepreneurial businesses, but they should be competing because they're innovative and creative, not because they found ways of arbitraging the tax and regulatory system. Mm. In the longer term, I think it's vital that when we talk about technology, which is going to change work dramatically, I don't think it's necessarily going to lead to 
whole jobs, whole swathes of jobs disappearing, but more it's going to lead to the the content of those jobs changing, the nature of tasks changing. I think it's vital that when we have that conversation, we start it from a humanistic perspective. We start from how can technology make people's lives better, how can technology make people's work better. What worries me a lot about the discourse at the moment is this this kind of technology means 30% of jobs will go. Mm -hmm. Technology means the labor market will be hollowed out. It's very dystopian. It's dystopian and it's disempowering, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, it's a little bit like how people used to talk about globalization before the crash as a kind of unstoppable force that you just got to get out of the way of. And actually what we've seen in the world, you know, in Trump and in Brexit and various other things is people saying no, no to globalization, actually, no to the idea that we have no choice but to kind of give up our national sovereignty. And, um, and so we have to listen to that and not commit the same mistake about technology, not that same reductive, disempowering discourse that says, well, you know, whatever Facebook and Google and Amazon want to do, whatever is invented next, we'll just have to do it. And whatever it means for your job, your livelihood to the national tax system, you know, your capacity to protect your children from content or maintain your privacy, well, that's just all got to go. No, in the end, we have got to assert, it's a very simple thing to assert, but I think we forget it too often, that technology must ultimately judge by whether or not it contributes to human well-being. And on on that very kind of basic point of, you know, essentially, put another way, we have moral choices about the relationship between technology and people um, and, and how that works. Have you found that there is um, common cause on that? So it's been very interesting talking uh, to people about the review, which was published in, in July. Um, and in a way... There's a kind of twin track to this. So on the one hand, there's the recommendations themselves, which we, I'm sure, will talk about, some of them anyway. And, you know, the response to them has been uh, pretty good, but people might disagree with particular recommendations or particular parts of recommendations. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, and it's generally been, as I say, positive. I was pleased that the Joint uh, Work and Pensions and Industry Uh, select committees reported on my report and broadly speaking agreed with it and indeed said that there would be a parliamentary majority to act on it so that's all great but that's on the side of the recommendations on the other side I felt that critical to my work was was getting across a value uh, uh, statement value proposition and that is that work should be good so on the very first page of my report I say that all jobs we should aspire to all jobs being fair and decent with scope for fulfillment and development. Um, And what has excited me is that this notion of good work, uh, the arguments for good work, the possibility of good work, seems almost to become a meme. You know, wherever I go, I hear people talking about it, I hear research being commissioned about it, I hear trade associations wanting to write reports about it. And I think, Jim, the reason this is so important is because it's important because if we're going to get change, legitimacy is critical. You know, I been doing this work stuff for the last couple of years, but I have 30 years in public policy, and I know that the, the changes that are irreversible, the changes that really make a difference are the ones where the public buys into the change, whether it's, you know, equalities, you know, equality for gay people, or banning smoking in public places, or Scotland having its own parliament. These are things which won't be reversed because, on the minimum wage, because people think they are right. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get across the idea that if we're going to act to improve work, we have to get across the importance of good work. And I also wanted to counter two views, which I think are quite prevalent in our culture, but people don't often voice them because they're kind of politically incorrect. But they are widely held. And those two views are, firstly, 
there will always be lots of crap jobs. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of fatalism that says, look, you know, some people have got to work in shops and they've got to be security guards and they've got to work in sewers and they've got to clean streets. Those jobs will just be crap. So, you know, there's no point thinking about whether those jobs can be better. And the second view is a kind of master and servant view. And the master and servant view is that what goes on at work is that I pay you to do what I tell you to do. And uh, anything beyond you doing what I tell you to do is kind of unnecessary. You know, I, I don't need to engage you. I don't need to worry about developing you. I don't need to worry about your fulfillment. I don't need to worry about your capacity to, to be autonomous. Or, you know, you are selling your labor to me. I'm in control of you, and I will tell you what to do. And the most efficient way to run an organization is for me to tell you what to do with as much intensity as I possibly can. So that master and servant view, and that view there will always be crap jobs, is deep in the British psyche, actually. Mm-hmm. And so what's excited me in talking about good work has been to pull that to the surface and say to people, no, there's no reason why any job can't be organized in a way that gives people some self-respect, some possibility for development and growth. And actually, overwhelmingly, the best companies, the most successful companies, are ones that treat human beings, treat workers as human beings, encourage them to bring their whole selves to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it, 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 even if the government was not to act on any of my recommendations, I would feel that the idea of good work had had some uh, important and benign impact. And I will carry on but however the government responds talking about good work. And do you think that there's there's an image in society that technology can't actually help improve that? You said that there's a kind of deep mentality amongst perhaps the British public where there's always going to be this bad side of things. There's always going to be something that's not going to be a good job. Why why do we tend to view technology in the workplace as being something that can't contribute something good? It's always it always seems to be couched in negative terms, whether it's around Uber and delivery, and you've said obviously in, in, you know, in your findings that you know, generally people that work for Uber and delivery enjoy the flexibility of it. That's one of the main reasons they want it. We don't want to remove that. Do you, do you think that's the case, or do you think that we can change that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a general kind of negativity <laughs> at the moment, um, you know, and we have contributed to that ourselves by decisions that, that, that we've made as a country. So I, I think generally speaking, when people look at anything, they're rather inclined to be pessimistic at the moment. And I think our politics often feels rather nostalgic. You know, mm. our politics is not about technological possibility. It's mm. it's about returning to some past, often quite rather mythical era, actually. So there's a, a general problem about the discourse at the moment. But I also think that people worry about power. And what they think is, well, you know, we live in a society that's very unequal. We live in a society where power is very concentrated. Who is going to decide how this technology is applied? Sure. And if the if the people who decide are Amazon, or you know the people who own Uber, um, then you know we could be in trouble because it's not those people have not demonstrated that what is at the front of their mind is to ensure that people who work for them have a fulfilling and developing job. But what seems to be at the front of their mind is how is they can maximise their profits. Now, that's starting to change, and you know not notwithstanding the issues about. Uber and it's falling out with the mayor and its issues on employment status, it has genuinely tried to do some quite interesting things to offer more services and more support to its workers. Now, I think it's done that because it's had faced reputational pressure. But it is possible, I think, to imagine that the discourse could be different. But we need to work at it because I think at the moment what people hear is powerful companies have this technology and they use it to serve their own purposes. Hmm. I mean, in terms of in terms of that sort of relationship, you know, master-servant relationship, um, you've got many recommendations in the review. Um, are there any that kind of spring to mind that you think address that issue 
particularly strongly um, and in terms of the conversations you've had since the review's been published have been picked up? Yeah, I think um, this is probably the opportunity to, 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 to identify because people listening might think, well, this is all very interesting. What, do you, what did you actually say? Yeah. So <laughs> let me give you three or four of the, of, of, the, of the ideas in the review because I think they will give you a, a sense of the range of what I was talking about and also the kind of method. So I looked for things which were relatively simple and straightforward ways of empowering people who are disadvantaged and at the bottom end of the labor market. So actually, one of my ideas, which I'm pretty hopeful the government will try to implement, um, it's unbelievably simple, and it is simply that every employee, every worker, possibly also some self-employed people, on day one of their employment, their contract, gets a simple, plain English statement of their, their employment status, their terms and conditions, the entitlements they've got, and any deductions they will have from their pay. Now, many, most organizations will attach to that a much bigger kind of contract and all sorts of other things, but on it day... It doesn't sound unreasonable. But on day one, you get that. And that will mean that employers, organizations have to think about employment status. Because if I'm going to tell you what your employment status is on day one, I need to think whether or not I'm going to say you're self-employed or a worker or an employee. But it will also mean that people who will know about rights that often they're not aware of. So, for example, a lot of casual workers in this country do not know they're entitled to holiday pay. Yeah. So they do six weeks work. They don't realize they're entitled to six weeks holiday pay or you know, proportionately. And we also recommended that they should be able to receive that in cash rather than holiday if they want to. Mm. Uh, so a simple measure like that. So throughout the report, if there were simple, non-controversial ways of empowering people, I looked at that. But then take um, a, a different question, which is the question of collective empowerment. I also argued that we should make it much, much easier for people to have independent representation at work. So somebody you can go to at work, elected by you, who is empowered to raise any concerns that you have got with management, and also to be given information about man by management about decisions that may affect people at work, and also to be consulted on things which are definitely going to affect people's terms and conditions. It would still leave us a long way away from the kind of partnership model that is taken for granted in continental Europe, but it's, it's a very basic right. And as I went around the country for my review and I talked to a lot of people, for example, zero hours or low hours contracts, one of the things they said to me, because of course they don't have rights because their workers are not employees, they have no right to unfair dismissal claims, they said they felt if they ever raised any concerns, if they complained about management, and think of all the issues around harassment we've had recently, they felt if they raised those, they would just be denied the hours they desperately needed. So representation and voice uh, is the second uh, recommendation. And then let me give you two others, so this gives you a kind of sense of the range of ideas. I also think incentives are important, and I, I have spoken about my report and said that it's more about nudge than shove. You know, it's, it's <laughs> more about nudging people rather than shoving people to do things. Sometimes you do have to shove, but I think in many areas you, you can just shift the incentives that have an effect. So I also argued for a higher minimum wage for non-guaranteed hours. So those people on zero hours or very low hour contracts, two or three hour week contracts, who are all asked to work 25 hours, 30 hours a week, would get a high, if they're on the minimum wage, they would get a higher minimum wage for those hours that aren't guaranteed. The purpose of that was partly to put more money into the pockets of poorer workers, but mainly to encourage employers and organizations to think harder about whether they could guarantee more hours. Mm. So, for example, McDonald's last year, I think, uh, asked all their employees who are on variable hours, do you want fixed hours? And 20% of their employees said, yes, we do. And McDonald's mm -hmm. said, fine, we can make that happen. Mm -hmm. So I think there's quite a lot of laziness out there. 
Yeah. Quite a lot of organizations that have zero hours or low hours contracts because it's simply a way of transferring all the risk from the organization and putting it on the shoulders of the worker. Sure. Mm-hmm. My view is if you want to do that, that's fine. If you want to transfer risk, that's fine, but you should pay for it. And you should certainly pay for it if you're transferring risk onto the shoulders of the most vulnerable workers. Mm. And then a final recommendation, which is very different, but this points to the attempt in my review to also look at longer term, more systemic issues, was I recommended the creation of a national employability framework. So this is the idea of a framework of sometimes called employability skills, life skills, soft skills, generic skills, things like creativity, leadership, teamwork, resilience, basic digital skills. Now, every university in Britain has got an employability framework. Lots of employers have got performance management frameworks. Apprenticeship providers have got these frameworks. One simple problem, they're all different. Yeah. Yet they're all quite similar. So for me, if you could create a national framework, what that would mean is that there would be an agreed way in which university degrees, apprenticeships, off-the-job training, on-the-job training, on-the-job achievements, and critically, things you do as a volunteer could be recognized. And so the hard side of your CV, which is your GCSEs, your A-level, your degree, your job history, is matched by this softer side of your degree, which is how is this person at work, in their training, as a volunteer, even maybe as a carer, as a parent, demonstrated their capacity for creativity or resilience. And I don't know if it was you, Jim, but someone told me a story about an interview, tell me if it was you, with somebody who asked a young person, they were in the interview for an apprenticeship. Yeah. And it was you? Yeah, it was someone that worked um, worked in a butcher's. Right. Uh, that was the story we talked about. And So uh, I'll tell you the story I think you told me, and what you're telling me is I've em- embellished it enormously, because that's well, what which, I do. Which is but fine. You, <laughs> you told me, what I heard was, he was being interviewed for apprentice ship this young person and the employer said well have you got any leadership skills and he said well no because he hadn't done a leadership course but it then transpired that he'd organized a kind of kids football team in his neighborhood well that is leadership skills doing that organizing that telling kids you're in you're out telling parents your son's in or your daughter's out it's probably a difference of it's a variation on a theme and it's and then secondly and i'm I'm sure i've added this (laughs) then have you got any resilience well i've been have been on a resilience course turned out the young person has cared for one of their parents through a long-term illness and you know been studying at the same time yeah so whether or not we've slightly fictionalized this jim i think people will understand the point and the point is that people, there's a whole variety of ways in which you can demonstrate these generic skills. We're not capturing it. There's yeah. no washing line for us to pin it onto, so we don't see it. No. And for me to be really visionary about this, it's part of saying you grow for the whole of your life. Mm-hmm. Far too many people, you know, in their 40s, you look at their CV and it looks like they've done nothing since they were 22 except they've yeah. done a job. Yeah. But And that job, they've got very specific functional, very specific skills for that job. Mm. There's nothing there about their... The, the broader skills and abilities and competence and capabilities. No, I mean, why isn't there? Why, well, for either of you, why isn't there that? Why haven't we been able to? I think it, that I, I do genuinely. I mean, look, I, 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 I've said 30 years in policy making. I'm very aware of the limitations of policy, but I do sometimes think the reason things don't happen is just inertia. Mm-hmm. And actually, a, a strong leadership, a good bit of policy can make all the difference. There is no, a, apart from in the part for education in the schools minister who's quite hostile to this agenda because he's very, very focused on traditional subjects and knowledge. Apart from that, I've not met anybody who doesn't say this stuff is important, and you'll know that employers say it's really important. Yeah. Yeah? And the only reason we're not capturing it is because we haven't got a single framework. So, you know, if you've got a maths GCSE, I know what it is, and 20 Mm. people can walk into my office, and they've all got GCSEs, and I know what a GCSE is. Mm. But at the moment, those 20 people might have all got interesting things to say about their leadership, but there's no way of, apart from 
a paragraph in their the letter of application. There's no way of capturing that. No, and 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 we know that the vast majority of employers, whether it's large employers or SMEs, say that it, we can. Um, we can teach people and train people to do the job. We just need the kind of the raw talent and we need the transferable skills. And there's a th- there's a, a huge need for this. There's yeah. a sort of a there's a lack of a common language. Essentially, yeah. put another way, we're looking for a common language that schools, young people, parents understand because yeah. it's everyday life yeah. and employers use it the whole time. They put a bit of kind of you know corporate garbage on it but essentially it's the same thing and if we can land that up in the middle everybody's speaking the same language and it creates productivity i think so and i also think we've got a big opportunity with technology again with um, the idea of digital badges Mm. so um you know we're doing a lot of work here around a project called cities of learning here at the rsa which is around combining leadership platforms and convening to get cities to say let's make a commitment to creating a learning culture in our Mm, city mm -hmm. and using these digital badges which are basically forms of accreditation which are much more informal and much more flexible you work with city and guilds on that yeah that's right so you can you can recognize recognize and it's quite interesting actually i was talking to the head of a major supermarket chain the other day and they had a quite kind of elaborate performance management framework which in the end kind of just got too elaborate and too complex what they now do is they just have a system of when someone does something great, they just kind of stop the conveyor belt and say, you've done something great, let's recognise it. Now, that's mm. actually how digital badges would work. Mm. You know, you'd be able to say, Here's, you just did a brilliant bit of customer service. Yep. Here it is. And, of course, we can now all carry our portfolios with us. I mean, yep. I, I've always been inspired by the fact that many, many years ago, I had a girlfriend who um, was an artist. Mm. And you know, I was going to university and so I would go to my university degree interview and I'd go with my O-level I was older before pre-GCSEs O-level <laughs> qualifications and we'd have a conversation she went for her art school interviews with a massive portfolio of her work yeah and yeah. opened it up and they could look at it and it was everything from doodles that she'd done that she thought were kind of interesting to major pieces of work she'd yeah. done so we need that portfolio approach that everybody feels they can carry everything that they're proud about around with them and it'll be not only will it improve employability and improve i think people's skills and development i just think it'll make the world a more humane world because everyone will feel i've got something to say about myself yeah i mean it's a kind of digital version of in in again we're, we're, we're probably similar generation in terms of uh, um, Cub Scout badges, yeah, Duke of Edinburgh award, badges, absolutely. Duke of Edinburgh, yeah, and it was are, a substantive yeah. sign. I've done something, yeah. and it was a recognisable currency system yeah. that everybody understood. Precisely, in its simplest sense. So, I mean, one of the things I like about our conversations is that we talk about um, not not fostering a kind of talking shop in anything that we're involved in, but but trying to get things done. And I guess the the whole purpose of your review is to provide recommendations which you hope find their way into the real world so uh, we've talked about you know your employability skills framework idea um what about we try and make that happen in 2018 yeah well i'd love to so i've i've had conversation with um uh, people in west london who are part of the kind of overall kind of london push on skills um, I've had some conversations with some industrial sectors about it, but it's it's discussion. So anything, you know, I'd be really keen to take that forward. So one possibility, just as a way of starting off, might be that a group of employers in a particular sector say we will have the same performance management framework. Yeah. 
you know so if, t if if five major employers in a sector said we're going to use the same framework yeah and so that means that when you go from this job to that job it'll be easier for you to show the way in which the skills you got up in this job are relevant to that job yeah i think start chipping away at it like that i will continue pushing it at, at, at the national level as i say the only thing standing in the way is inertia yeah and one of the things that helps kind of you know um break through that kind of stasis that inertia is as you put it earlier legitimacy yep. you know pe people uh you know don't like being the first to do something but if you ask someone to follow something you get a lot more traction so yeah. i think if something kind of could start somewhere uh, and i think between us we've got enough yeah. networks who are you know could create common cause and it would be very this. i think the other thing is you, you want to force people to do things that feel overly rigid but this is very flexible. Hmm. So if we say, look, you know, this is a framework, and let's say one of the categories is creativity, you can, as an organization, have a conversation about how you want to define creativity and Absolutely. how people get it. The point is you just organize it under that heading. Mm -hmm. So to put it in its most very prosaic form, when I have my CV, I've got a section called creativity, and I can point to a set of digital badges I've got or a set of experiences I've got, and people will go, okay. And they may say, well, that's not quite the kind of creativity I want, but at mm. least there's a conversation taking place yeah, about the fact completely. that you demonstrated creativity in various parts of your life. Completely. And in terms of the... Ultimately, one of the, one of the benefits of this is it would, it would bring together and bridge the gap, which you know exists in a pretty profound way, between employers and educators. Um, do you see, or put another way, what do you see as the key things that need to happen for employers and educators to get onto the same page? So, um, I, I this is a bit of a secret, but not really a secret, but I can reveal that it, it, in my review there were certain things I was trying to achieve by stealth. So, in the review, one of the things I advocate is a much stronger role for the low pay commission. Hmm. Now, I do that because they are the right body to take forward some of my ideas. But I also do it because the low pay commission is the only only significant tripartite body we've got in this country. That is to say a body where trade unionists, employers, mm -hmm. government, outside experts come together and they work together. And it works pretty well. I think we need more of those kind of tripartite structures, hmm. employers, employees, government independent experts. It's a bit of a mirror, say, Lord Adonis Infrastructure Commission. Yeah, so that kind of way of working, precisely. Similarly, in this employability thing, what I was trying to do is, I, I don't think, you know, I wasn't asked, and it would have been politically ill-advised for me to engage in the conversation about what schools should be teaching, what schools should be doing, because that's a very hot topic. And But my view is this. If employers got their act together and people started to recognise these generic skills it would start to seep back into the school system. Yeah. Because then parents would start to say, well, actually, it's great that my daughter's getting these GCSEs, but, you know, I, I'd like them to be a designer. So what is the school doing to demonstrate that she's got capacity to do, be creative or to be innovative or entrepreneurial? Because that exactly. looks like that'll be relevant. So let's establish it in, in higher education, apprenticeships, further education maybe, and employment. And then we'll try and crack the toughest nut, which is to see how you can combine that. Because I do think subject and I do mm. think knowledge are important. I'm not mm. a kind of mad progressive. Mm -hmm. But I also think we need to think about how schools can work in ways which enable young people to demonstrate as well as subject, as well as knowledge. They're also developing these broader skills. Yeah. Thank you. So just to cycle back on some of those things we've talked about, I mean, you previously said on the on the 
recommendations from the report that you'd rather it take a long time and have a stronger impact than perhaps be a quick fix and, and perhaps a weak one. What what sort of movement have we seen on, on, on either side, really, on, on the recommendations from the review or from some of these employability issues that you've looked at? Um, well, as I said earlier, we've seen a lot in terms of conversations about good work, and I put that in my pocket and I'm just pleased about that. So, you know, for me, the review has been a success because of that. The government is going to respond in the new year. I be believe that the reason they're responding in the new year is because they're thinking hard about what to do um, and engaging and consulting on it, not because they're trying to knock it into the long grass. And to be honest, anyway, because there are so many court cases and discussions about all these issues, any hope they might have had to they would kind of go away is not, you know, is not. But I don't, I actually, I don't think there's any sense to that. They've talked to me throughout. And they said to me a few weeks ago, look, we need to do more work, so it'll be New Year. So as I said, I, as exactly as you quoted to me, I said, well, rather it's a few weeks later because there's some substance to it than it's rushed out early. Very good. I think we're we're running out of time. We could talk and talk and talk about all sorts of things and ask you lots of questions. But, we'll do um, it another time. Yeah. Indeed. But I guess on a, a final note, um, uh, I've I heard you mention you're a self-professed workaholic. Um, so what, what do you do to switch off? And, and actually, interesting, I'd be curious to know, what do you read? What's on your reading list over Christmas? <laughs> so uh, to switch off, now switching off has become more of a problem for me because uh, we, well, in one way it's easy to switch off because I've got a five-year-old daughter. So, <laughs> you know, she's not generally speaking interested in good work um <laughs> she's interested in lego uh so you know that's fine um uh i run i run about 40 kilometers a week so very good you know running is a big thing for me and funnily enough reading is the other thing i do so you know i i, I do i do okay i find myself at the end of the day i'm afraid falling into netflix zone because i'm just so knackered and yes uh, my intention is always to read for two hours every night, and I read for half an hour, and then fall back into Netflix. But and Netflix favourites? There's such good TV out there. Oh, uh, well, I um, I watched the trial of O.J. Simpson. I'm not sure if it was on Netflix, but the the dramatisation of it. Yes. There was a documentary, and there was a. But I thought the dramatisation was the best bit of television I've ever seen. I just, I didn't want there to be a verdict because I didn't want it to end. <laughs> I just was completely enthralled, uh, enthralled by it. But you know, there's a lot of good. T I mean, you know, this is a golden era of TV. There really And is. by the way, by the way. 15 years ago, people said TV was dead, you know, and then technology changed it. Just like they said 15 years earlier, cinema was dead and yeah. good films and multiplexes changed that. So, yeah. you know, Reinvention. you can't be sure of the future and technology unless you know about business models and people's capacity to invent things. But reading, so basically the way I read is that I will have on the go a novel, yep. a book of essays, which I read in a very private room in the house. Um, <laughs> And something kind of worthy. Yeah. But then cutting across those three things, so I'm reading kind of big history book. I'm reading uh, Frank Capan's book, The Silk Road, at the moment, you yeah. know, slowly. Yeah. It's a great book, but it's a lot of detail in it. I'm reading a set of essays by Martin Amis. And I'm also reading a sci-fi book. Um, but then cutting across that, we have about, you know, I chair about 30 or 40 events here every year. Yeah. And so a lot of the time I'm reading for... So Mugging one of the things I'm looking forward to over Christmas is that Stephen Pinker who's one of the great, world's great public intellectuals, has written a tome about enlightenment. Fantastic. And so this is combining work and pleasure to read, th read that in order that I can look forward to chairing him in January. Very good. Well, I wish you all the very best with that. Thank you. Matthew, Jim, thank you both. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to this Change Board Future Talent podcast. You can hear more from Matthew on the skills agenda and what good work looks like when he speaks at our Future Talent conference on March the 22nd at the Royal Geographical Society in London. 
Our other speakers include Sir Lenny Henry on what true diversity looks like, Alistair Campbell discussing mental health, and Margaret Heffernan looking at the importance of friendship in business. Join 750 business leaders to discuss the future of work by booking now at www.ftconference.changeboard.com. For more stories like this, follow us on Twitter with the handle at changeboard or visit www.changeboard.com. Thank you.